Last week, we talked about our identity in Christ. And I wonder how many of you remembered those seven characteristics of our identity that we went over last week. We said, number one, I am a saint. Can you say that with me? I am a saint. If you have faith in Christ Jesus, you are his, you are a saint. The second thing we said was, I am blessed. Can we say that? I am blessed. Just jogging your memory a little bit here, okay? Number three, I am chosen. Excellent job. No peeking at your notes, though. Okay, here we go. Number four, I am adopted. Very good. Number five, I am... And we're getting a little slower here. Okay, this is your identity in Christ. You must remember this. I am redeemed. Number six, I am forgiven. Number seven, I am sealed. If you believe that, say amen. Amen. Let's pray, and then we'll dig into Ephesians 2. Oh, God... From your word, we look to you for help. It is your spirit who has inspired these writings. We thank you for preserving them 2,000 years so that we might glean from your wisdom today. If there is anything from our hearts that would prevent us from hearing from you, we ask that you would remove that now. And if there's any stumbling block in our path that would prevent us from obeying what you have here, we ask that you would remove that as well. For Christ's sake, for his reputation, we pray. And all God's people said... Amen. It's that time of the year for the Major League Baseball playoffs, and uh, I want to take you back a little bit, though, 31 years to be exact. You might remember in 1986, the Boston Red Sox were in the World Series, and they were playing the New York Mets. At that time, the Boston Red Sox had not won a World Series in I don't know how long, a really long time. 1986. Here they are. They're one out away. One out away from winning the whole World Series. And Bill Buckner was the first baseman. That's when it happened. It's an infamous play now. You remember Mookie Wilson was up to bat. He hits the ball right down the first baseline. If Buckner would just grab it with his glove and walk over to first base, tag it, they're done. He's out. It's over. They would win the World Series. But you know what happened. The ball went right through his legs. Oh, Buckner didn't look like a big leaguer that day. He looked like a little leaguer out there. And then they lost the World Series in the very next game. You probably remember that story. What you might not know is how humiliating that was for Bill Buckner. After that, he tried to continue to live there in Boston. He said the population, though, was so ruthlessly hard on him. Everywhere he would go, he would be reminded by everyone who saw him about his failure. Buckner said, that's it, I'm leaving. He moved away to Idaho and started working on a ranch somewhere far, far away from baseball and anybody who knew him and the mistake that he made. You can go to Google and type in images and you'll see pictures of him like with a hat on, like taking care of cattle in Idaho. Have you ever felt like a failure? You've failed somehow in sin, you've You've fallen in your faithfulness. You've fallen in your integrity. You've fallen in your courage. The scriptures say we all stumble in various ways. And perhaps if that's happened to you, you feel like your spiritual career is over. 
I think everybody wrestles with this at some point in their lives. They may not wrestle with it in those terms, but they wrestle with it. There's choices that we've made in the past, and we just can't forget them. There's decisions that we've made, and that we just, there's just this guilt. There's just this shame. Everybody carries it around. And even though maybe we, even Christians, I've realized as a pastor, still struggle with this. Yeah, yeah, I've heard the, the message of the scriptures that says that we're forgiven, but th- is there any way that I can actually you know, feel forgiven? Like, it's clean, it's washed away, it's done, it's over. Is that possible? Good question. Ladies and gentlemen, the answer to that persistent, pernicious, nagging spiritual question is found in our text today, Ephesians chapter 2. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. Some people have called this the greatest passage in the whole Bible. Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. It's a well-known passage of Scripture. It's broken down into three very easy parts. There's three distinct movements. Verses 1 through 3 is all about what we were saved from. Verses 8 through 10 is all about what we were saved for. And then in the middle... Verses 4 through 7 tells us how God made it all possible. Let's take a more detailed look at what I mean. If you're ready for God's word, say amen. Amen. Let's put it up there. It says in verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, in the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Before we get to the good news, we have to look at the bad news first. What I want you to imagine here is a, a spiritual hospital. The Apostle Paul is in the emergency room, and humanity gets wheeled into the room as the patient on the table. Here, Dr. Paul is assessing the situation. He's examining his patient. He's making some observations. He's diagnosing the problem, and it's not good. In fact, he says the patient is dead. Now, I want you to notice in verse 1, it says, you were dead. Not like, oh yeah, the problem's over there with that other person. No, it says you were dead. Now, you might say, that's kind of confusing. What do you mean I'm dead? I'm not dead. I'm right here. I'm living. I'm breathing. My heart's beating. I might got some problems in my life, maybe some bad habits, but I am not dead. But here, Paul is not talking about physical death. You see, the word death in the Bible just means separation. Physical death is a separation of the soul from the body. If you've gone to a funeral and you looked at that body in the casket there, uh, there's nobody in that casket, right? You know that that person's not sleeping. They're dead. Their soul has been separated from their body. But this verse is talking about a spiritual death, which is a separation of the soul from the only source of life there is, God. This verse is talking about spiritual death. You might appear as if you still have some residual life in you, Paul says, but you are like a bouquet of cut flowers. You might still have some signs of life for a short while, but because you've been severed from those roots, it's only a matter of time. Till you die. 
Friends, humanity has been severed from God himself. As a result, we are dead. Now, what was the cause of death? Here, Paul uses two different words. The ESV uses the words trespasses and sins. Uh, The word sins there is his favorite word in the Bible to describe our condition. It's the word hamartia. It means to miss the mark. Yesterday, we were at the Barnes' house, and a bunch of the teenagers were playing with the bow and arrows. Well, they weren't playing. They were strategically using the bow and arrows in the backyard to hit targets. And if you miss the mark, this would be the word that you would use to describe missing the mark. But if you miss the mark, how many of you know you also hit the wrong mark? That's the word sin. They missed, we have missed the mark. Secondly, the word for trespasses here is the idea of a betrayal. We are trespassing on someone else's spiritual property. We are a traitor. The notion there is that there was this agreement between God and man, and man violated the agreement. We wanted to be on his property. We wanted to be in his place. We wanted to be the one in control. We wanted to usurp the position of God. So there's been this mutiny, a cosmic breach of trust. We've trespassed into territory we were told not to go. As a result, in verse 2, it says that we've been following some things. Uh, the, the translation follow is probably not strong enough. The word actually means to be mastered by something or to be enslaved by something. He mentions here that we've been following three different things. Did you notice what they were? Number one, we've been following the world. Number two, we've been following the flesh. Number three, we've been following the devil, the prince of the power of the air. If you go back to the slide before that. The word flesh there is the word sarks. Now, when you read Paul's letters, the word sarks or flesh never means your skin. The word flesh is a technical term which describes the sinful nature. It reminds me of an old story I heard as a kid from Aesop's Fables. A scorpion and a frog meet on the bank of a stream, and the scorpion asks the frog to carry him across its back, on its back. The frog says, well, how do I know that you're not going to sting me? The scorpion says, because if I do, we're both going to drown. The frog is satisfied with his answer, so they set off across the, the, the river. But in midstream, sure enough, the scorpion stings the frog. The frog begins to feel the onset of the paralysis and starts to sink, knowing they will both drown. He has just enough time to ask one last question as he gasps for his breath. Why? And the scorpion says, because it's my nature. Friends, the Bible doesn't teach us that we're sinners because we sin. It teaches us that we sin because we're sinners by nature. Now the flesh is something inside of us that is entirely selfish, incurably stubbornly, self-centered, self-absorbed, and self-serving in every single way. Martin Luther, you can put that picture up, the great reformer from 500 years ago said in one of his most profound quotes I've ever read, he said, humanity is incurvitus in seai, which means curved in on itself. Let me read you the full quote. He says this, human nature is so curved in on itself that it wickedly, curvishly, and viciously seeks to use all things even God, for its own sake. That's our flesh. 
That's our sinful nature. Let me put it simply. From birth to death, I view everything in my whole life with this one question in mind. What's in it for me? What's in it for me? What's in it for me? That's my nature. As you might imagine, this results in some rather immoral behaviors on our parts. Notice the word in the text again, passions. Some of your Bibles might use the word cravings. It's the word epithumia. It means addictions. What is an addiction? An addiction is an uncontrollable desire that consumes your life despite any negative consequences. It covers a variety of things. People can be addicted to pleasure, power, greed, alcohol, food, sex, drugs, any number of things. You can be addicted to the praise of man, uh, to the praise of your own ego. We're addicted by these passions, these cravings, and they're, they're insatiable. At first, we listen to these cravings, and we said, you know, I want to do whatever I want to do, whenever I want to do it, with whoever I want to do it. I want total autonomy. I, I want to do what I want to do. And at first... We thought, you know, I desire this. But over time, it turned into, I can't control this desire anymore. At first, we thought it was freedom, but then over time, we're like, I, I can't quit. At first, it was, I don't want to, you know, give up any of my fun behaviors in life. But over time, it was, I'm enslaved to this thing. And I can't get out. As you might imagine, this manifests itself in some pretty low behavior, morally. But the flesh has another side. Like the other side of the coin, sometimes the flesh will manifest itself in an opposite way, with very high moral behavior. You say, what do you mean? Well, if you think about it, there's a way to behave in a morally good way, which can still be very self-serving as well, in terms of its motivation. If you are morally good but not so much to please God, just because you're afraid of the consequences for you, well, then your moral goodness is still rooted in your own self-protection. You see that? In other words, if I only behave myself because I don't want the consequences of misbehaving, or if the only reason I behave myself is because I want to feel morally superior to you, because I don't want to be like those people over there, you see how the the motivation there is still self-centered? It's pride and self-righteousness. I begin to look at other people with a a sense of judgmentality, and even morally good behavior can be rotten at its root. You see the problem here? We're enslaved. We put ourselves at the center in God's place. Now, isn't that exactly what the prince of the power of the air tried to do? We're following right in his footsteps. That's what... The serpent tempted Adam and Eve with in the garden. You don't need God. You can be like God. You don't need to follow him. You can follow your own ideas. You don't need to live for his glory. You can live for your own glory. And when we give into this way of thinking, we fall right into the prince of the power of the air's trap. And it's not just us. Everybody else does too. We follow after the world. Just like everybody else. I mean, sometimes what doesn't make me turn away is that I've got such good company. Everybody else is doing this. Friends, the Bible teaches that there is no such thing in safety in numbers. 50 million Frenchmen can be wrong. Just because everybody else is doing it doesn't mean it's right. I'm reminded of that awful place 
called Auschwitz, where millions were murdered in those gas chambers. And I remember learning that back then, those people, in innocence, they thought that they were going to those showers, being led into opportunities to get cleaned up after that long train ride to go after a better life, not realizing, not recognizing, even as they were crushed by the hundreds into those small showers of rooms, what was actually igniting the poison was the body heat of everybody together. That everybody being together was actually the cause of their death. Friends, sometimes we think this will be okay because other people are here too. The Bible says, don't you realize that's not just a deception? That could very well be the cause of your demise. That's what we get following the world and the flesh and the devil. Spiritual death, separation from God. As a result, he says, we're children of wrath. Not a very popular word today. The word wrath just means God's settled opposition against sin. God's settled opposition against sin. So many people today say, well, I don't believe in that. I just believe in a God of love. But don't you realize that his wrath is a function of his love? If you have a God that never condemns anything, that never has wrath for anything, that's a distortion. But we're in our point in our culture where this whole idea just isn't understood anymore. People say, listen, you know, I'm just not very religious, Pastor Dave. I don't attend church. I'm not really spiritual. I try to give a, live a good moral life, but I'm really okay on my own. If there is a God, you know, fine, but I'm sure he doesn't have any wrath for me. Not, I mean, I haven't, not that I hate him or anything. I just don't need God in my life. I'm kind of indifferent. I don't see why that's such a big problem. That's kind of where we are today as a culture. Let me explain why that's a problem. Let me tell you a story. I'm just going to make this up. Imagine a single mom has a son. Though it was difficult for him, she raises him. She put him through good schools. She gets him a good college education. All of this at great personal sacrifice to herself. She had very slender means. She says to her son all along, son, I want you to grow up to have good, solid values. Always tell the truth, work hard, even care for the poor when you can. Now, let's say after the young man grows up and graduates from college, he never wants to speak to his mom again. Never visits, never spends any time with her, never even sends her a card on her birthday or Mother's Day, nothing. And let's say you and him are talking, and you say, how's your relationship with your mom? And he says, I don't really have anything to do with her. It's not that I hate her or anything. I just don't really need her. I'm kind of indifferent. But hey, I'm a good person. I try to tell the truth a lot of times. I try to care for the poor. Would you be satisfied with his answer? No. The Bible teaches that God is our heavenly Father. He has gifted us with our life and our breath. We owe everything we are to him. Don't you see that when you say, I don't really need God in my life, what that sounds like to him? It doesn't sound like indifference. 
it feels like hatred toward God. Here's our patient on the table. These wounds are serious. There's nothing more that can be done, says the doctor. There's no hope. The patient is dead. I was reading my wife's ESV study Bible this week in preparation, and there was this little note under this verse that said this, quote, No hopeless fate looks any grimmer than that which awaits the forlorn company of mankind marching behind the prince of the power of the air to their destruction under divine wrath. Just when things look the most desolate, Paul utters the greatest short phrase in the history of human speech. But God. But God. But God. I love that phrase. It's used over three dozen times in the scriptures. It's used when circumstances are going one way, and then God steps in and turns those circumstances 180 degrees around. You remember the story of Joseph, his brother sold him into slavery, and he comes to them, he says, you intended to harm me, but God intended this for good. You remember the story of King David, the the giant Goliath was strong and intimidating, he was undefeated, but God was with David. But God, here in our passage today, this is the greatest but God in the entire Bible. Here's humanity, dead on the table, lost without hope, nowhere to turn, but God. Let's continue to read the passage. It says this, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Amazing. Amazing. Three things that God has done here. Did you notice what they were? Three things. He has made us alive with him. He has raised us up with him. He has seated us with him. Unbelievable. We were enslaved to sin, but God says we are now free. We were children of wrath, but God has made us his own. We were dead, but God has made us alive. How is all this possible? We have been united with his son, Jesus Christ. The phrase with him occurs three times as well. Did you notice that? With him, with him, with him. If we have faith in him, when he died, we died. When he was made alive again, we were made alive again. When he was raised, we were raised. When he was seated far above all rulers and principalities, we were seated with him far above rulers and principalities in that place of spiritual authority. The great scholar N.T. Wright, who is uh, probably the best person to write on the resurrection in our generation, says it this way, quote, Becoming a Christian means that what God did for Jesus at Easter, he does for you in the very depth of your being. Wow. Probably one of the greatest preachers of our day is the Reverend Dick Foth. He heads up the National Prayer Breakfast in in D.C. He's written a, a, a number of good books. Recently, on May 22nd, 2013, he and his wife, Ruth, were ministering to a young couple. Ruth said, I think I want to share a poem with you, but my heart is pounding so hard, I don't even know if I can share it. They all thought she was just maybe a little nervous, but then Ruth sat back in her chair. She gasped for breath, and her eyes rolled back into her head. She had suffered what doctors call a sudden cardiac arrest. Immediately, Dick calls 911. 
Within three minutes, a police officer arrives. They start doing chest compressions right away, 100 per minute, one, two, three, four. Then they shock her with that thing. Then they start all over again, one, two, three, four. Then they shock her again. Then as Dick relayed the story, he said, then I heard the greatest phrase I have ever heard in my entire life. We have a pulse. We have a pulse. Friends, do you realize what Ephesians 2, 4 through 7 is telling us this morning? Ladies and gentlemen, we have a pulse. We have a pulse. Here's the good news. Jesus lived the life you should have lived, died the death you should have died, took our place. Man, that's good news. Now think about this. What is sin? We discussed earlier. Sin is me putting myself in the place of God. What is salvation? God putting himself in where I was supposed to be. John Stott says it much better. Let me put that quote on the screen for you. The essence of sin is us substituting ourselves for God. The essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. That's exactly what Jesus has done. This is the greatest structural narrative humans can think of. The king dying for his people. I was just chatting with my daughter, Alex, at Cedarville yesterday, and she loves that Harry Potter series. And she was saying, you know how the story ends? Harry Potter dies a substitutionary death. That makes sense. That's because we can't think of a better ending. We can't think of a better story. Friday night, we were sitting around having family night with our, our kids, and we watched that movie, The Smurfs. You guys seen that movie? Probably only if you have little kids, you've seen that movie. And sure enough, you know what happens at the end of The Smurfs? Smurfette gives her life up as a sacrifice for the good of the Smurf colony. I'm serious. I didn't know I was going to go to seminary for four years, come here and talk about Smurfette. But that, that's the gospel right there. We can't think of a greater narrative structure than that right there. One person giving their life up for the good of the many. That's because there's a, there's a trace, a memory trace inside of us that longs for that because we know that is the true gospel story. Christ died. For us. Why did he do all this? Look at verse 7. So that, purpose statement, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Why are we saved? So that we might demonstrate his grace. And not just a little bit of grace, his immeasurable grace. Mega grace. We are saved not so that we can become independent now and now we can stand on our own two feet now. Thanks God for the lift up. I'm good. No. We are saved so that we might forever grow in our understanding and our need for this grace and Christ's finished work. We can't even fathom the extent of this grace. We will sing for all eternity, John tells us, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. This is the great gift of salvation, which is what he says in verses 8 through 10. Let's put that up there. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. When it comes to receiving this gift, there's one key word that stands out in that passage. It is this word right here, faith. 
What is faith? The word means to rely with confidence, not on myself, but on another. It is not independence, it's dependence. It is not standing up, it is collapsing upon his mercy. It is not me giving, it is receiving. It is not working, it is resting on Christ and his finished work. That's faith. You're exercising faith right now in a small way in the chair that you're seated in this morning. You didn't know that when you walked up to that chair, you had to make a decision, a decision of faith. Will this chair hold me up? You said, yes, I exercise faith in that chair. It will hold me up. Just like we rely on a chair to hold up our weight in a spiritual sense, we rely on Christ, his work, and his work alone to hold us up. That's why Paul says no one can boast. The word boast there was an ancient word that they would use oftentimes in the battlefield. Right before they went into battle, the soldiers would run in, and before they would go, they would boast to kind of stir up their courage. We have iron chariots, and they don't. We have 10,000 men, they only have 5,000. We have the greatest spears and the best shields. They're boasting, boosting up their own confidence to do something really hard. It's a way of scrambling for a sense of identity and courage out there on the battlefield. This, Paul says, is what a lot of people do in the spiritual realm. Instead of admitting my need for grace, my need for mercy, I boast about my good works, my reputation, my resume, my achievements. Frankly, it's exhausting. Here, Paul says the essence of becoming a Christian is the end of all boasting. The essence of becoming a Christian is the end of all boasting, period. Full stop. This year is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. No one understood this concept better than the great reformer Martin Luther. At the beginning of his ministry, he was a monk, But he was a monk with a troubled and tormented conscience. He had tried the whole sacramental system, but nothing he could do would ever give him the feeling of any assurance before a holy God. He would go into the confessional and spend hours in there with his priest, confessing every little tiny sin that you can think of. I mean, he lives in a monastery. How much trouble can you really get in in a monastery? But there he is in hours and hours confessing before this priest only to go back to his room and remember something that he forgot to confess and then the guilt would return. Remember that question we asked at the beginning of the message? How can I really feel forgiven? That was what Martin Luther really struggled with. Here is his question. How can I, an unjust person, ever stand before a holy God? Or as David says in the Old Testament, O Lord, if you would mark iniquities, who could stand? Rhetorical question. Answer. No one. Then one day, they assigned this troubled monk, Martin Luther, to teach the book of Romans. Maybe that'll help you. And he's digging into chapter 1. And while he's studying for his class, to teach the class, he comes across verse 17. It says, for in it, the gospel, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed by faith. And he couldn't understand that expression. 
in German, Gereichtigkeit, Gott, the righteousness of God. Luther couldn't get this because at first he thought that righteousness was meaning that the righteousness by which God is righteous. He thought it was an attribute of God. And then he picked up an old commentary that St. Augustine had written a thousand years earlier. And in this little throwaway line, in this obscure essay, he comes across this phrase that Augustine wrote almost like a, not a big deal, but here's what he read, quote, Now when Paul says the righteousness of God here, he does not mean the righteousness by which God is righteous, but rather he is talking about the righteousness that he gives out as a gift by faith. Right there, the light bulb came on for Luther. He realized for the first time in his whole life that that righteousness that he was talking about was not the righteousness by which God is righteous. It's the righteousness that was given to him by faith. And Luther said, when I saw that passage and I saw the good news, I saw the gospel for the first time in my life, it was like the doors of paradise swung open and I walked through. And whoever he talked to after that would get this same message from Luther to the point where they wanted to kick him out. They said, Luther, will you recant of these writings? And he stood up and said, I can't recant unless I'm convinced by Scripture or by evident reason. My conscience is held captive by the Word of God. Don't you know an act against conscience is neither right nor safe? Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Let me read you the full quote. Night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy he justifies us by faith. Therefore I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. That's what Paul is teaching here. That's what Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is all about. For by grace you're saved through faith. Not by works lest any man should boast. Now, now, some people say, well, what do you mean when you say not by works? Aren't works important in the Christian life? Doesn't James say in chapter 2, faith without works is dead? Yes, but what James means is that our faith will manifest itself in good works. Those good works are a product of our salvation, not a requirement for salvation. Yes, they're absolutely necessary to be saved by, by God's grace to prove that you really are saved by God's grace, but that they are not meritorious in your heart in terms of your standing before God. Do you remember the story that Jesus told of the Pharisee and the tax collector? Let me just summarize it for you. Two people went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, one was a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, those people at Millington at 10.30, I mean, good night. Thank God I'm not like all those other sinners. Or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I got. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus says this, I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. Now imagine for me a little speculation. Let's say this tax collector was 20 years old when he prayed that simple prayer. 
And let's imagine for the next 60 years, he lived the ideal Christian life. Tons of good works until he was 80 years old. Even after those 60 years, even after the ideal life, at 80 years old, he would still have to go to the Lord and pray that same prayer. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Because he would know that those good works that he had done contributed nothing to his salvation. He would still have to say, like the hymn writer, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress. Helpless I look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Another way to describe the doctrine of justification by faith alone is simply by saying we believe we're justified by Christ alone. That's what Paul's saying right here. Let me ask it this way. If you were to die tonight and go to heaven and God were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Some people say, well, you know, I went to church. I'm not as bad as most people. Other people might say, well, I've done some good things in my life. All of them are saying what? Look what I did. That's not the way. Paul says, by grace you are saved through faith, not by works. So when God says from heaven, why should I let you in? Your answer, your answer needs to be, I come by faith alone in the Son of God who saved me by his grace. Period. Don't add anything else. When you do that, Paul says you are his workmanship. The Greek word there is the word poema. It's where we get our English word poem. It's the idea of a work of art, a work of master craftsmanship. God is making you beautiful unto himself. Why? Because he's shaping you and molding you into the very image of his only son. Wow. That's some good news. Let me finish that story I started with about that guy, Bill Buckner. After he moved away to Ohio for many, many years. In 2004, the Boston Red Sox won the World Series for the first time in like 80 years or something. And they called Bill Buckner. And they, they said, we want to invite you back. And he goes, no way. <laughs> Four years went by. In 2008, they called him again, three months before the season started. They say, we really want you to come back. Would you reconsider? He goes, no way. But call me in like a month. A month went by. They called him again. Would we really like to, you to come back? And, and this time he says, yes. He goes back to Boston, moves back there. They're going to allow him to throw out the first pitch of the season. He's there, he's got his Boston Red Sox uniform on, he walks out, and as he's walking out from the outfield, heading down towards the pitcher's mound, the crowd begins to cheer, and the crowd begins to give him a standing ovation. And if you saw that game, you know tears were streaming like floodgates down his face. They welcomed him 
He just is weeping. After 30 years of being ambushed by everybody, calling him a, a loser and a failure. Here he is. He gets to the mound. He throws out the first pitch, tears streaming down his face. You know, ladies and gentlemen, Bill Buckner is now actually part of the Red Sox organization. He's one of the head coaches for one of their minor league teams. I'm telling you that story because it's a spiritual picture. Our, our passage today gives us a similar picture on a much deeper level, on a much more spiritual level. On the grand scale, we all have failed God. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. But God. But God. But God calls us, redeems us, forgives us, makes us alive again, raises our life back from the dead, seats us with his dearly beloved son, and then invites us to come back by faith alone, and then recommissions us with a new work to do. That's the good news. Amen? At this time, we're going to invite the worship team to come. And as we close out the message and the worship team comes, I just want to ask you a question in your own heart. And here's the question. Have you had a but God moment in your life? Have you come to the place in your spiritual life where you have accepted the Lord Jesus by faith? Have you done that? Have you transferred your allegiance to the, the world, the flesh, and the devil to an allegiance with God's one and only Son? Are things right between you and God? He's coming again, folks, to judge the living and the dead. For by grace we are saved through faith. The same message applies today that it did 2,000 years ago. We come to him by faith and faith alone. Have you placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? As I was preparing for this message, I felt led by the Holy Spirit to, to let that be part of the close of this message. If you've never done that, today would be a great day for you to make that decision before the Lord. So can we all pray together now? Every head bowed, every eye closed, everyone praying. As we bow our heads and close our eyes, just spend a moment with the Lord. Ask yourself this question. Do you know for sure that you are saved? Have I placed my faith in Jesus' work on my behalf? Or am I still at odds with God? My friends, today can be the day of salvation. Today can be your but God moment. You say, what must I do? If you want to be saved, you must place your faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone. If you're ready to do that, I, I want you to repeat after me in your own heart. You don't have to say it out loud, these words that I say, but just between you and God. Before we do that, I, I want you to understand it's not a prayer that saves you or anybody in this room. It's you repenting and believing in your own heart and soul the gospel of Jesus Christ. In your own heart, just repeat these words. You don't have to say them out loud. Just say, Lord Jesus, I confess that I'm a sinner. I confess my need of you. I need your forgiveness. I want to make you my Lord and my Savior today.